Well, welcome, ladies. I'm so excited. We're supposed to have rain tonight. My plants are, are excited. And I hear it's going to be a thunderstorm. In fact, it's already started a little bit out there. A few lightning strikes here and there. Love lightning. I remember when I was pregnant with my uh, youngest son. I lived up in the mountains. And Jeff was gone on uh, one of his many missions trips. And, you know, I would stay home with the kids because they were still, well, I was pregnant and I still, I had a little one. Anyway, I just got this craving for steak. You know how pregnant women can get, right? (laughs) And it was snowing outside and I got, oh, but I got to have that steak. So, you know, I got, I had to, and I wanted it grilled, you know, none of this pan frying stuff, right? So I fire up the grill and I put my steak on there and then God put on this wonderful show for me as I'm standing out there on my deck grilling a steak. It was snowing and then there was lightning flashes. And I've never seen anything like it before or since, but it was reflecting off the snowflakes. The most beautiful thing I think I've ever seen. It was amazing. And it has nothing to do with our study, but it was just a fun story. (laughs) All (laughs) righty. It's just a fun story, right? So last week, you remember what happened? They were being threatened with death, and they had to put up the guards and all that kind of stuff, and the people were grumbling because they were tired. And we learned that we're not to be fearful, but trust God and have faith that only, that only he can give us. And remember that the Holy Spirit is there to help you with this, and you don't have to live in fear. And then also we learn we're supposed to be prepared. Don't forget, your put, don't forget to put your armor on in the morning. Know the truth. Live the righteous life. Don't play with sin. Don't get near the, the cliff's edge, so to speak. Rely on the gospel. Always remember that Jesus died for you, and he will do everything for you he can. And then ask for faith if you struggle in this area. Trust God when he tells you you are saved. It is a promise. And that is putting on your armor. And then we have that that one offensive weapon, which is the word of God. Don't ever forget to pull out your sword. Amen. And remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. We cannot do this on our own. Don't trust in yourself in this world, it's all about self-promotion, but for the Christian, it's about God promotion. Amen? And now this week, we are learning about defending the defenseless. So not only was Nehemiah having to build the wall, deal with the knuckleheads, Sanballat and Tobiah, and now the people were complaining that they were getting tired, now he has internal strife. And so before we get into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word and the wisdom that is in it. When we read your word, Lord, help us to really apply it, not be just hearers of the word, Lord, but doers. And so as we go through this amazing chapter, would you just quicken our hearts to really desire to trust in your wisdom, trust in uh, your grace and your mercy in everything that we do and say. So we give you this time, ask that you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Verse 1, chapter 5, I'll be again reading out of the New Living Translation. And it says, about this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against fellow Jews. 
So Nehemiah had been focused on building the wall, dealing with Sanballat and Tobiah and all his cronies. And he was, you know, thinking more about protecting the people. He didn't know that some of the attacks were going to come from within. And many times during difficult times, that's when people's true character comes out, isn't it? And in this case, people were protesting their fellow Jews. They were lodging a complaint against them. And even the women were protesting. The wives were protesting. And this just wasn't done in that society. So you know it had to be bad. And there were basically three groups that were protesting. The first one, verse 2 says, and they were saying, we have such large families. We need more food to survive. So this group... um, were people who did not own land. They were probably artisans. They, maybe they were uh, uh, shepherds, or they could have been bakers, or you know, just pick any of those things. But they weren't farmers, so they couldn't make their own food. So they had to buy food, and they didn't have money to buy food. They had no way of producing food. Now our second group, verse 3, the others said, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And so landowners were having to borrow money because their fields were failing because of a drought. And so they were, uh, because they could not make their own or grow their own food, they were having to borrow money again to buy food. The other said, verse 4 says, we have, to, have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay taxes. Now, remember, um, they, were in, they were being controlled by a foreign government, so to speak. King Artaxerxes was a Babylonian king, and he demanded taxes of the Jewish people. And some of them didn't have the money to pay their taxes because it was just huge amounts of money. And so they were having to borrow money in order to pay their taxes. And the only people they wanted to borrow the money from was their fellow Jews. And here comes the tragedy of this. Verse 5. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet, we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. That's a horrible turn of events, isn't it? So when they couldn't pay the payments or still didn't have enough money for food, they had to sell their children into slavery. And so they had a choice. Either the rest of the kids starve or, you know, they had to sell one or two of their kids. Tragic situation. So the wealthy were getting wealthier. The poor were getting poorer to the extent that they had no choice but to sell their children. I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, it, it goes against everything in my heart and my mind and my soul to sell my children. It's like, no, I would rather die of starvation first. But, you know, this is the choices that they were faced with. And it was not unlawful to loan money out, but it was against God's law to charge interest, and that's what they were doing. You know, they knew they had a, had these poor farmers and artisans and, you know, all these different uh, fast, uh, groups of people that they needed to borrow money 
he like had them over a barrel, so to speak. So they would charge him these huge, huge amounts of uh, interest. So the Jewish law, though, made a way for a family to survive during times of difficulty. And it's found in the Levitical law concerning um, this. And it's Leviticus 25, 35 through 38. And it says, if one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and cannot support himself, support him as you would a foreigner or a temporary resident and allow him to live with you. Do not charge interest or make a profit at his expense. Instead, show your fear of God by letting him live with you as your relative. Remember, do not charge interest on money you lend him or make a profit on food you sell him. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So already we see here they were going against God's Levitical law. And they were charging interest. And it gets worse. These guys were really um, being bad here. Leviticus 25, 39 through 43 then goes on to say, If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell himself to you, do not treat him as a slave. Treat him instead as a hired worker or as a temporary resident who lives with you. And he will serve you only until the year of Jubilee. So... He's, God is giving a way for these folks to provide for their families. And so basically, he is a hired worker. In other words, he's an employee. That's what they're saying here. No, you don't take them as slaves. You hire them as an employee. And then it goes on to say, at that time, he and his children will no longer be obligated to you. And they will return to their clans and go back to the land originally allotted to their ancestors. The people of Israel are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, so they must never be sold as slaves. Show your fear of God by not treating them harshly. So the year of Jubilee was mentioned in here. And what that is, is every 50 years, all debts are wiped clean. I mean, this is ingenious. I mean, God knows what he's doing here. So what would happen is if you um, owed money to someone, that debt was clear. Servants will be released from all their debts. The land will be given back. And they did this in order to balance out the economic system. Otherwise, we would have generational poverty here. And that's not what God wanted. So he says, erase all debt. But apparently, this was not what was going on here. And they had no fear of God and treated them harshly. And they took advantage of difficult circumstances. They were using their power to rob some and put others into bondage. And the crazy thing about all of this is that greed was one of the sins that the prophets denounced before the people of Israel and why they were brought into captivity in the first place. And now they're doing it again. So Nehemiah was angry. Verse 5, when I heard their complaints, I was very angry. And it's important to note that Nehemiah's anger was not a sinful anger, but a righteous indignation. He was angry at the way the wealthy businessmen were taking advantage of the people. And there are times when anger is appropriate. Uh, we have an example here in Mark 3, 1 through 6, where Jesus got angry, and he had good reason. And it says, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. 
Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. You remember, they were always trying to trap him. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man, come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. They looked around at, he looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. And at once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. I mean, this was like a typical Pharisee thing. But you notice Jesus was angry at their sin. He was not angry at them. What was his heart towards them? He was saddened. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, I know that God was angry at their sin, but he still loved them. And he was saddened because that fellowship that he had with Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember, he used to walk with them in the cool of the day. And now he no longer had that fellowship with him. Those of you who have prodigal children, you know this. You hate the sin, but you still love your children. And it just grieves you. It saddens your heart when you think of the path that they have taken. It's the same thing. Or young children that you have to punish. You know, it really is true when you say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. It does. I mean, as a parent, you hate to have to punish your kid. And so it's kind of the same thing. You, ha- you hate the sin, but you love the sinner. And it saddens your heart when they go against the law. And so Nehemiah was angry because there were Jewish people treating Jewish people in a horrible way. He was angry at the sin. And then he goes on to say, after thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials. And I love the fact that he didn't react right away. This is a really good lesson. Uh, Years ago, when we lived up in the mountains, when we got there, there was this beautiful, mature uh, pear tree. And I love pears. There's nothing quite like a ripe pear. Amen. And I always waited for the crop to come in. We only got a crop once a year. And the blossoms would always show up kind of around the middle of spring. Well, up in the mountains, you never know when you were going to get a freeze. And so sometimes I would get a good crop. Sometimes I would get a bad one. On a good year, I would have one, 200, you know, pears. And they were all very, very yummy. And there was this one year that we got a late freeze and all the blossoms had dropped off except for 11. Yes, I did count them. And so I had 11 pears on the tree. And every day, you know, as they were getting bigger and I was always waiting for just the right moment to pick them. And they had to be like the certain color of yellow. And then I knew these were going to be pristine. These are going to be the best pears ever. And so every day I'm out there and I'm looking, I'm watching, you know, are they ready to pick yet? No, one, maybe one more day, one more day. And then one day, um, my boys were playing outside, and they had some friends over, and I was working inside the house, but, you know, I was doing the mom thing where I had, you know, one ear to listening to them because they were boys, and boys get in trouble, and, you know, I actually had a complete first aid station in one of my bathrooms because everybody, you know, all the neighborhood kids came to our house. And so I was always patching them up and stuff. But anyway, um, I digress. So I'm, I'm 
listening for the boys, and things are getting really rowdy outside, so I go, I'd better check them out. So I walk outside, and I come upon this scene where I have one kid is throwing one of my precious pears up in the air, and the other one has a wood sword. And as he's throwing it up, he's trying to cut that thing right in half, right? And I look at my driveway. It is littered with smashed pears. And I'm going, you know, and I'm starting to hyperventilate, you know, and I'm going, okay, I'm going to explode, you know, over pears, mind you. But, you know, this was the Lord was teaching me something, right? And so I had to walk away, basically count to 10. And then I had to walk up very calmly and smile. And I say, please don't waste the pears, you know. And they go, okay, Mrs. Gill, no big deal, you know. And it was, it was really hard seeing all the smash. I had three left, and I'm going, oh, you poor little things, you know, how traumatized were you? But anyway, you know, that I had learned, the Lord was really saying, you'd better control your temper, you'd better control it. And it was, it was hard, and sometimes it's so hard for us to control our tempers and situations. So I can relate to Nehemiah, but in this case, his was not about something so frivolous as your pears being smashed. He was, people are being abused here, and he was angry. And so, Nehemiah, no doubt, was faced with something far more provoking. He could have just reacted and let them have it. I mean, I think that's what I would have done. You know, how dare you? But instead, what did he do? He thought it over, no doubt, because we know he's a man of prayer. He prayed about it. And when he was ready, he addressed the situation. At the end of 7, verse 7, it says, I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the, with the problem. So he addressed the nobles and the officials saying, okay, guys, you're in trouble here. Um, and it's interesting to note that these were the officials. So we're talking about mayors, you know, that kind of thing. The very ones that are supposed to be overseeing the people were taking advantage of their position and, uh, and taking advantage of them. And he told them straight that they were hurting their own people by charging interest. And now he was going to call them out in front of the people. Verse 8. At the meeting, I said to them, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And then they had nothing to say in their defense. What could they say? I mean, he called them out, and what he was saying was true. They were being publicly shamed for doing exactly what the foreign oppressors had done before. Why the very reason why they were in this condition with their city torn apart was because they were in slavery. And no doubt they were pretty embarrassed by this time because they didn't say a word. They knew they were busted. Then verse 9, then I pressed further. What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? Remember those verses I read in Leviticus? The people were not to treat them harshly out of fear of God. God takes it very seriously when the oppressed are being treated harshly. And so God would bring judgment on them because of their sin and greed. 
and allowed them to be conquered. And now the people were at risk of being oppressed again by their enemies because of the way they had treated each other. And they were supposed to be the the example to the rest of the world. That's what was so heart-wrenching about this. They were supposed to be an example of godly people. And they were showing the Gentiles that they were no different than the rest of the pagan world. Verse 10 then goes on to say, I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, have been lending the people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. And so Nehemiah shows by example what is to be done here. He's loaning them money and food, but without interest. He wasn't taking advantage of them. Then verse 11 goes on to say, You must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day and repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and and olive oil. So I'm sure this was a hit on their old bank accounts, right? They had to pay back every bit of interest that they had charged the people. So they had to restore everything. That was Nehemiah's judgment. That was God's judgment upon them. And then verse 12, they replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. Then I called the priest and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. So he brought in witnesses. Maybe they had a contract to sign that they would never again take advantage of the people of Israel. You see, the, the officials and nobles, they had met their match when they came against Nehemiah. And why is that? Because Nehemiah had God on his side. He had God's wisdom. And he made them swear before God that they would make things right by the people. And then verse 13 goes on to say, I shook out the folds of my robe and I said, If you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. The whole assembly responded, Amen. And they praised God, and the people did as they had promised. So after the meeting was done, there were three actions that really brought to light the seriousness of the situation. First, Nehemiah, he shakes out his robe. And we've kind of seen this in uh, the New Testament also, where Jesus actually told them, you know, shake the, the dust off your feet. In Acts, uh, you hear the phrase, you know, shook off the dust from their feet. That means when somebody rejects what you were saying, just shake the dust off and walk away. It's kind of a phrase, don't, don't try to deal with them anymore. Kind of like throwing your pearls before swine. And then the congregation responded with a collective amen, or so be it, which was much more than just a Jewish ritual. It was their solemn agreement to what had been said and done in the assembly. And then, and they ended with that phrase. Now, God had enabled Nehemiah to help them begin to solve their problems, and for that, they were praising God. He had directed the moneylenders to acknowledge their sins and make restitution. And so now the people are going, yay, finally, uh, the oppression has ended. And so they were praising God. So what lessons can we learn this week? Lesson number one, never take advantage of others' hardships. We are not under the Levitical law but we are under God's law. Mark 12, 29 through 31 tells us, 
Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is the one and only Lord. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second, the second excuse me, is equally important. Love your neighbors as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So if you love your neighbor, you are not going to be taking advantage of them. If you truly love them. And the important thing to note here is that God never changes. He gave the law back then. He still has a heart towards those that are being oppressed and those that have been downtrodden. Number two, control your anger, even righteous anger. Uh, James 1, 19 and 22 tells us, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry, even if they smash your pears. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. And what is righteous anger? How do you know? Okay, I've heard that term. Well, it's a righteous anger because, you know, I'm, I have every right to be angry. Yeah, but it may not be a righteous anger. So how do we know for sure our anger or indignation is righteous? Well... It is righteous anger when it's what angers God himself. Righteous anger and indignation are justly expressed when we are confronted with sin, when we have sin exposed. Good examples of this would be uh, anger towards child abuse, pornography, racism, abortion, things like that. If it doesn't fall into that category, then it could just be your flesh. It was my flesh that was getting mad that my pears were smashed. I readily admit that. It wasn't worth losing my witness over pears, even if they were really good pears. And, you know, we are to slay the flesh, so to speak. We must not let the unfruitful attitudes and actions control us. Ephesians four thirty one and 32 tells us, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. That's how we do it. If you find yourself getting angry, remember how God has treated you. Even when you have messed up, he's always treated us with tenderness. And then the third lesson, be resolute. When you see something wrong, when you see another person being taken advantage of, expose it. Don't let it continue. And how do we do this? Well, we have those steps in Matthew 18, don't we? And I know you've heard this before, but it is so important because so many times we don't follow these guidelines. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 tells us, If another believer sins against you, or in this case, you just find out that they are taking advantage of someone, or you think they're taking advantage of someone, go privately and point out the offense. Go privately. Don't expose them to everybody else. We want to make sure that these are legit claims here. If the other person listens and confesses it, You have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. 
then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Back in those days, a, a tax collector was like the worst thing you could ever be. Kind of like a politician today. Um, <laughs> but always go to the accused and let them first give you their side of the story. It could just be a misunderstanding. But if not, then we must act to defend the defenseless, especially if it's an allegation of you know, child abuse or something like that. So in closing, see, Nehemiah showed great wisdom again in dealing with a difficult situation. And that wisdom can only come from God. And in this life, we desperately need God's wisdom, don't we? But how do we get that wisdom? You know what? God made it so easy. James 1, 5 and 6. Listen to this. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. So, Not sure what to do in a situation? Ask God for wisdom. He will give it to you. This is a promise. If you need God's wisdom, ask him. And don't doubt. And if you think you can handle this on your own, like I'm a real independent person, and I always think I can do this. You know, it was surprising. I remember uh, when my boys, actually my oldest boy, was growing up, you know, and he found out that he could peel an orange by himself. You know, it was always, I do, I do. You know, and I I would start to peel it. No, I do, I do. You know, he wanted to do it himself. Sometimes we do the same thing. I do. We're telling God, you know, I can do this. Well, many times we can't. Most of the time we can't. 1 Corinthians 3, 19 through 20 says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. As the scriptures say, he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows they are worthless. Wow. We must depend on his wisdom because we have the ability to mess everything up, don't we? But when we ask for God's wisdom, he will give it to us. And then we don't have to worry about making that wrong decision. And that's where that peace that passes all understanding will come to us. Is if we know that we have made the correct decision because we have first prayed and asked God for wisdom in that situation. I will leave you with Proverbs 2, 6 through 12. Wonderful scripture. Highlight it in your Bible. It says, For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He grants a treasure of common sense to the honest. He is a shield to those who walk with integrity. He guards the path of the just and protects those who are faithful to him. Then you will understand what is right, just, and fair, and you will find the right way to go. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will fill you with joy. Wise choices will watch after you. Understanding will keep you safe. Wisdom will save you from evil people, from those who whose words are twisted. So God's wisdom will protect us. God's wisdom will help us make the right decisions. And God's wisdom will help you help the defenseless. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, there is so much to uh, absorb 
in this scripture so many uh, wonderful truths. And I would ask that anyone here, that if they're struggling with uh, maybe anger, Lord, help them to seek your face in that. If they're struggling with faith, would you just give them the faith to move mountains? If they're struggling with wisdom, perhaps stubbornness, they're proud, think they can do that on their own, and they have found that they just keep making mistake after mistake. Lord, help us to be like Nehemiah and always seek your wisdom first in every situation, no matter how small, no matter how big. And so, Lord, as we, do, as we discuss this further at our tables, we just anoint that time so that they could just bring home uh, just perhaps a nugget of truth that they can meditate upon that would encourage them and help them grow. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you. We ask this in your name. Amen.